0: Good morning, Four Oaks. So glad that you were here, putting on each other. I'm Paul Gilbert, one of the pastors on the pastoral team here. Before jumping into God's Word this morning, let me make you aware of just a couple of things. Three weeks from today, that's the Sunday after Labor Day, September 12th, um, is a big day for us because we're going to begin once again to offer full children's ministry classes for both first and second service. All the people said, amen, right? Yeah, amen. And so, guys, I just want you to, to be aware that The reason we're able to be in this room in relative peace, right, in harmony and tranquility is because we have an army of children's ministry volunteers that are working right now. And they're not just babysitting your kids. They're pouring into them. They're discipling summer camp Sundays. It's been a great summer. But as we head to the fall, there's a real pressing need that we have to call the whole church into asking what does it mean to serve the church family? Guys, there's a, you know, think about being a part of your own nuclear family growing up. Tons of benefits, tons of blessings, but also a lot of responsibilities of shared service and leadership and and those sorts of things. And same thing in a healthy church family. Uh, We want to be here uh, receiving the blessings that God has for us in our various ministries. At the same time, we want to serve um, one another. And so if, you're, if that kind of hits you at all where you are, maybe you're, you're, you've been here a while, maybe you've been receiving a lot of the ministry of the church, and you're really thinking about, God, how can I serve, be involved? Children's ministry is a great window of opportunity. You don't have to teach a class. You can be a nursery worker, an assistant, um, small group leader. There's a whole host of things. You know, and the Pipers are back from sabbatical right now, by the way. Do you know this? Let's welcome them back. <laughs> And as a a welcome home gift, if you clapped, that means you volunteered for Children's Ministry. Congratulations. Um, No, you can go see Julia Steak or by the Hub after this is over, and we would just love, it would be seriously a huge blessing uh, to Robin and Shannon who have been gone all summer to come back and say, you know what, we have another army, a second army of volunteers ready to go to pour into our kids. All right, without further ado, you can open your Bibles to Romans chapter 1. Now, as we embark on a brand new preaching series, I thought it might be helpful for us to take just a minute or two to explain what it is that we do here on Sunday mornings and sort of what our approach is to preaching and teaching through the Word of God. I know there's a number of you who are are new, who've come into the last season of the life of the church. And typically, we make it our practice, not exclusively, but typically, ordinarily, we preach through books of the Bible or at least big passages of Scripture um, or chapters. And the reason we want to do that is that if you leave it up to me, okay, or up to you to decide at any given time, what do I want to read in my devotionals today? Or what do we want to preach about today? We're always going to gravitate to those things that, that we're most comfortable with, that are not controversial, that, that, that hit us right where we are in our very comfortable lifestyle. And that's just human nature. But we find that when we preach through books of the Bible, we let the word of God set the agenda. And I'll be honest with you, as, as we preach through Romans, I mean, right out of the gate, okay, there's gonna be things, it's gonna be pressing us to talk about that are anathema to our culture at large. But this is what we think it means to embrace the whole counsel of God's word. And we want to let the point of the passage be the point of our message each and every Sunday. Now, with that said, let me just say this. I've been at Four Oaks 25, six years. The church is a little over 30 years old. To my knowledge, we've never preached through the entire book of Romans. Now, we've done sections. We've done chapters, nuggets, those sorts of things but never um, the full thing, chapters 1 through 16. And it's, it's interesting, kind of exploring who else, what other churches have preached through the whole book. Not a lot of churches have done this historically, and it's understandable on one hand, okay? First of all, Romans is a daunting book. It is 16 chapters. It is the longest epistle we have in the New Testament. It's deep, it's complex at points. Paul weaves an intricate argument all throughout. Yet, when we think about what Romans has, and guys, I am just so excited about this series. There, this is going to be a feast for your soul. Um, it has been just a blessing being able to get into it and prepare. This is what John Stott says about this book. He says, Romans is the fullest, plainest, and grandest statement of the gospel in the New Testament, and without a doubt, by the way, it's the most influential book by far. I believe in the history of the church. So Augustine of Hippo, who lived in the fourth century—that's Augustine, not Augustine. Everybody with that. So when you go to the beach, you're going to Saint Augustine, not Saint Augustine. Do that, the locals will look at you crazy. Uh, probably the single greatest thinker, writer, theologian in the history of the church. He was a rank pagan right? He made Bill Clinton and Donald Trump look like choir boys. That's Augusta did. Do you see how I hit both sides of that? Oh, everybody get that? He was reading Romans 13 one day, and God just pierced his heart, and he was saved and transformed and regenerated. Martin Luther, many of you are familiar with that story. Luther was a monk at Wittenberg, and this is so interesting. This is how Luther was saved in part. He was teaching through the book of Romans for his seminary students in the year 1515. And there was a text in Romans that just haunted him. And it was Romans 1.16 where it talks about the righteousness of God. And Luther said, that is not good news. Because God is righteous and I know I am not. And it sort of held this abject terror or fear over his soul until one day, as he was studying this like a lightning bolt... God really showed him that the righteousness of Christ is not something that Luther had to obtain or earn. It was something that was given as a gift to those who have faith in Christ Jesus. And he proceeded to write the 95 Theses and nailed them on that um, that castle door and really sparked this worldwide reformation of which we are the benefactor and heirs it was, the, it was the letter to the Romans that played such an instrumental part. Guys, I could go on, on like this. John Wesley, um, who was one of the, the, the founder movements of part of the Great Awakening through three or four hundred years ago, was saved by studying this book. And so we are going to camp out in this one. Um, we're not going to do it Martin Lloyd-Jones style, who took 11 years to preach through it. Okay, We're not going to do that, but we will be in this book for about 18 to 24 months and let me tell you what I want us to do today I want to introduce you to the book I want to give you some background context how is it structured its themes where it's heading what it's going to those sort of things and we're going to do that by reading the first 15 verses of chapter 1 and I'm going to use that as a reference or a launching off point and then next Sunday we'll start to get into it in more detail but for today if you can willing able I am going to invite you to stand as we read God's Word through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God, our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come To you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Let's pray. Father, we're reminded that we have your holy word here, that Paul is not offering an opinion. He's not offering a perspective or a take on life or on spirituality. He has been commissioned by you, Jesus Christ, to preach your word and to give us your word. And we pray, Father, that we would order our hearts and minds and lives accordingly under that. So, Father, we're not our own. We belong to you. We've been bought with a price. We want you to have your way with us as your people. And so, Lord, we ask now that you would help us. Lord, we pray that this word over this coming season would really permeate our souls and that we would be transformed by the renewing of our minds as we study your word. Lord, we ask these things in your son's name, Jesus. Amen. Please take your seat. A mistake that I think we want to avoid when we're studying Romans is sometimes we can think of Romans it's almost like a systematic theology textbook, right? Or it, it, it's, it's, a, it's a biblical theological reference guide. It's, it's something that guys in seminary study, and we, we sort of use it as a reference, right? Whenever we want to get into a debate or an argument, when we talk about God's sovereignty, let's go to Romans nine. We want to talk about justification, let's go to let's go to Romans four. But we lest we forget one very very important thing before. Romans is any of those things. And it does speak to all those issues, of course. Romans is first and foremost a letter. Okay? We, we forget that because it's a long letter, but it is a letter. It's a letter from Paul to the church in Rome. And so as magisterial as it is, and as much as it is, it's sort of the magnus opus of Paul's life, there is a context that Paul is writing into. In other words, what Paul writes about in Romans... Has a very direct pastoral implication to the church in Rome. It's not like he just went into his study closet and decided, "Hmm, today's the day I'm going to write about total depravity. Today's the day I'm going to write about justification. Today's the day I'm going to to write about Israel and the church and the future of God's people." That's that's not how that happened. Paul it wants to speak to a very direct, specific context of things that are happening in the church, and unless you and I get on board with that, understand that, we won't understand Romans in the way that we need to. So so here's what we're going to do today. There's three points. Okay, number one, we're going to talk about the biblical background. How does this letter fit into everything else going on in the Bible and the life of Paul? Two, we're going to look at the cultural context, what was pressing in on the believers in the church in Rome, and then finally, a timely thesis. And this is where we're going to sort of get at what is the main agenda and purpose that Paul has in writing this letter. But let's look first at the biblical background. Guys, the Apostle Paul has been an apostle now some 20 years. He's been on three major missionary journeys, and he is now coming to the end, it's about 57 AD, of his third missionary journey. And he is about to go to Jerusalem to deliver the offering. Remember that he had been collecting from all the Gentile churches to give to the poor Jewish Christians back in Judea. And it is from Corinth, we believe, where Paul is wintering. He can't travel in the winter in the ancient world. He's wintering, and he pins this letter to the church in Rome. Now, here's the, here's the odd thing that makes Romans really distinctive from all other books that we find in the New Testament pretty much. Not only did Paul not start this church, Paul had never even been to this church. Okay, you can see that in the verses 10 and 13 where, that we just read. He says, asking that somehow by God's will I may now at last succeed in coming to you. Verse 13, I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I've often intended to come to you, but thus far, have been prevented. It's been in Paul's heart to get to Rome, but up to this point he hasn't been able to pull it off. And because he doesn't know most of the people in the church, and because they only know him by reputation, he does a very he does a very strategic thing. If you have your Bibles, flip back to Romans 16 just for a second. And I just take some time, because I'm going to encourage you as part of this series to read the whole book. Of Romans in a sitting, but when you get to Romans 16, I want you to notice how many different names Paul mentions. I mean, you throw a dart at Romans 16, you're going to hit somebody's name, right? And parents, if any of you are having, having a baby, th- there's so many possibilities from Romans 16, I'm just saying, okay? It is, it is, and the reason Paul wants to bring up these names to the church in Rome is he's just trying to establish a connection. It's like what we do in networking, He's saying, hey, I think we know the same people. Priscilla and Aquila, you know, they came from the church in Rome. I know them, and you know them now, too. And he's sort of using this as an opportunity to build a rapport, to build a relationship, to say, hey, what I have to tell you is of utmost importance, and Paul is intent on establishing common ground with them. Now, when we get to Romans 16 in the year 2030, okay, we'll talk more about, okay, you get it. Now, some of you are just a little slow this morning, right? Now, where did did the church in Rome come from? Where did it come from? If Paul didn't start it, where did it come from? Acts 2, I think, gives us a clue. Now, here's the context. Peter is preaching at Pentecost, and the Holy Spirit is coming down and regenerating hearts, and 3,000 were saved in that day. And remember that Jews from all across the Roman Empire who were scattered would come back to Jerusalem for the holy days. Whether that was the Day of Atonement or uh, Pentecost or some of the other festivals, they, they would come back, they would journey, and they would congregate in Jerusalem. Now listen to what happens in Acts 2. And I had never actually, I'll promise you, had not seen this before until I began to study this. Look at Acts 2, verse 7. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear, each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene. Now listen to this, and visitors from Rome. Now isn't that interesting? See, it seems that Rome, the church in Rome, was one of those churches that did not have an apostle at its founder. Most likely what would happen is that as as people Jewish people from Rome came to Jerusalem for Pentecost and they were saved as part of that 3000 they then returned to their homes okay in Rome and there they planted the church in Rome and here, they most likely met in house churches. When we, get again, get to Romans 16, seriously, we're going to find out that there are you know, greetings to the, to the church that meets in this person's house and greetings to the person that meets in that person's house, right? And it's clear that, that even though Paul did not personally, had not personally visited or known them, it, he had it in his mind for a long time, it seems, that he wanted to go to Rome look at verses 11, 13 of the passage we just looked at. It says, Paul says, I want to to visit you. I want to minister to you. I want to serve you. I want to encourage you. And guess what he says? "I I want your encouragement as well. Remember... That Paul is at a very low point in his ministry when he pens this letter. He has had a very painful visit to the church in Corinth. Any visit to the church in Corinth is painful. But this visit was particularly painful. And as he was contemplating what his next strategic move was, Rome was the natural response. Now, why is that? Well, guys, remember, Paul is the apostle to the Gentiles. He had been set apart specifically by Jesus to go and preach to Gentiles, non-Jewish people. In fact, he had made an agreement with the other apostles that they would go and focus on the Jews, and Paul would go and focus on the Gentiles. Rome represented really the Gentile capital of the world. It literally was the greatest city in the world. It was the epicenter. It It was the very... It was the very essence of what it means to live as a pagan Gentile far from God. And Paul says, I want to be there and I want to serve and I want to minister. But he also has a, an additional part of his design with this visit. Look at Romans 15. Let's read this. And thus I make it my ambition, Paul says, to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. But Now, since I no longer have any room for work in these regions, and since I have longed for many years to come to you, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain, and to be helped on my journey there by you once I have enjoyed your company for a while. At present, however, if I'm going to Jerusalem bringing aid to the saints, at present, however, I, I'm, I am going to Jerusalem bringing aid to the saints, for Macedonia and Acacia have been pleased to make some contribution For the poor among the saints at Jerusalem. Here's what's happening. Paul tells them, I want to come see you, church in Rome. I've heard about you. We know the same people. I want to minister. I want to serve. I want to encourage you. um, I want you to encourage me. But I have one little errand to run first. See, Paul says, "I've I've got to stop over real quickly in Jerusalem. And see, I have to deliver this offering that all the churches... The Gentile churches have been making a contribution to, to give to the poor church in Jerusalem that was suffering terribly from famine and poverty and a whole host of other things. And so Paul says, I've got my eye out West, right, where I'm going to go to Spain. Because remember, Paul says, I want to preach the gospel where the gospel isn't. And he tells us in this text that he's already done his work in the East, right? Asia, minor, Greece, he's planted churches all over the place. He says, but I really have my eye on Spain. And Spain represented the sort of the, the farthest regions of known civilization at that time. That was the place, Paul says, I know the gospel is not there, and I want you to help me get there. I want, I, I want you to be my little sending church. I want you to come alongside of me. I want, you to, I want us to encourage each other that I want you to support me on this, probably his last missionary journey. This was Paul's dream, right? Paul's dream had always been to get to Spain. But Paul says, first, I've got to stop by Jerusalem. And we know from reading Acts, this visit to Jerusalem does not go the way Paul thought it was going to go. Things don't go as planned. There's a riot at the Temple Mount. Paul is tossed into prison, and you just sort of see his dreams evaporating, But God, I was going to do great things for you. I was going to start this missionary movement. I was going to go to Rome. Then I was going to go on to Spain. God, this seems like such a good desire that I have. Why why am I in this prison? Paul tells us, or God tells Paul, Acts 23. here, Here Paul has his first night in prison in Jerusalem. He's awaiting trial, and this is what happens. The following night, the Lord stood by him. And said, take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must also, what? Testify in Rome. Isn't that interesting? Paul's going to Rome all right. He's just not going in the way that he planned. This this is not the way Paul drew this up in the locker room at halftime, right? This does not reflect his, his halftime adjustment. Paul's like, I've got big Great things to do in Rome and Spain. And God says, Take courage, Paul. You're going to get to Rome and I'm going to be with you, but it just won't be like you thought it would be. See, many of us, I think, I know, can relate to where Paul is at this point. Guys, there, there are some of you who have been praying for the same thing for years. You've been praying for prodigal kids, you've been praying for somebody's marriage. You've been been praying for a job situation. There's something that, that you continually are bringing before the Lord. Maybe it's a dream. Maybe it's something that's in your heart that you aspire to do. But for whatever reason, God is saying no. Or God is saying wait. Or God doesn't seem to be saying anything at all. And see, when we pray for things, church, we have to give room in our minds and hearts to know that the way God hears our prayers and answers our prayers is far above anything that we can accomplish or imagine. You see, when we pray things like, God, make me more dependent upon you. That is a dangerous prayer, okay? Because when you pray something like that, God says, absolutely, I want to make you depend more on me. I'm going to take that thing away, or I'm going to remove this thing, or I'm going to bring this thing into your life. See, God has... The big picture in view. And a lot of times we begin to question God. We begin to put him in the dock and the witness stand and say, But God, this is not the way. I, I mean, I, I prayed that, but you know that's not what I meant. I'm in this, not that. Paul is learning that God's ways are perfect, his timing is perfect. See, for Paul, not every setback, suffering, or surprise. It was for him another opportunity to proclaim the gospel. Do you realize that Paul while he's in prison this particular stint writes what we think are probably four letters of the New Testament. See he saw all he saw everything that God brought into his life as simply another opportunity to proclaim the gospel. Cuz let me ask you a question. What is the Rome in your life? The Rome that thing that you think, if I could just get there, that my, my, my heart is fulfilled. If, if this particular thing could just happen, if, if this person could do this, or God, you worked in this person's life, or you, maybe there's a besetting sin that you've struggled with all your life. And you're like, God, I've just asked you over and over. I feel like I could be such a better servant if I didn't struggle with this or that. What's the roam in your life? I don't know. But I don't ask if you have it, because we all do. I simply want to point us to what the Lord pointed Paul to as he saw his dreams for Rome shattering. He says what? Take courage. Church, take courage. Jesus is standing beside you. Jesus stood by Paul. Jesus stands by you. If you know Jesus Christ, he indwells you. He lives in you by his Holy Spirit. So take courage. All right, so that's the, that's the biblical background. Let's look quickly at the cultural context. So as we said before, the first Christians at the, in the church at Rome were Jewish Christians. But here, here's what began to happen in Rome. and This happened actually in cities all across Asia Minor and Greece where, where, where the apostles had planted churches oftentimes when the Jew, when Jews came to faith in Christ and became Jewish Christians, they entered into this adversarial relationship with the traditional Jews. See, the traditional Jews viewed the Jewish Christians as, as heretics. They've gone off the rails. They're, they're worshiping Jesus. But what the Jewish Christians just thought, we're doing exactly what God prophesied in the Old Testament. We're God's people, but now we're just worshiping his chosen son, his Messiah. And so you had a lot of tension in the ancient world between Jewish Christians and then traditional Jews. And that was the case in Rome. Well, when Claudius was the emperor of Rome, he had a very um, methodical way to deal with these tensions. And Acts 18 tells us about this. Listen to this. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla. There you go. That's an example. Priscilla and Aquila apparently made their home in Italy, in Rome. And, and this is how Paul met them. When, let's keep reading. I'll tell you what happens. Recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them. And because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked for they were tent makers By trade, here's the way the empire dealt with these tensions. They're like, we could care less what your little intramural squabble is. Okay, we we don't care. But if you're going to cause trouble, we're going to just toss you out. That's what Claudius did. He gave a decree, and we know this historically from extra biblical resources. He gave a decree and banished all Jews from the city of Rome. And so these Jews would would be traveling and trying to find another home, and Priscilla and Aquila were, were two of them. And a lot of these people Paul got to know in his ministry. That's how he made that Roman church connection. Now, when those Jewish Christians were kicked out of Rome, guess what's left? Gentile Christians, a few of them. And as four and five and six years passed on, and as, as the church in Rome and other, other cities began to grow, primarily of Gentile Christians... Claudius died. And once Claudius died, that decree was abolished, and all these Jewish Christians started to flow back into Rome. And what do you think happened as these Jewish Christians came and observed all these Gentile Christians in their church, right? Kind of reminds me, a college student, when you go away from college and you come back and find out your parents have like turned your room into like a hot tub or something, you know, how, how it's just like, Wait a minute, my my older sister, my younger sister or younger brother took over my room, took over my stuff. This is that kind of this is that kind of dynamic. These Jewish Christians had started this church. They started this church. They had come, they had a huge, rich legacy. And they had been kicked out and they were finally coming back home after five or six years, and they come in all these stinking Gentile Christians, they're not doing church the right way. They're they're not performing all the rituals and and observances and the things that we think are important to do as a Jewish Christian. And you can imagine this is where the tension came from. This is where disagreement and disunity. And so, Paul, in his letter, this is going to answer the question why, why does Paul write this letter? Paul writes this letter because, number one, he wants this church to serve as his sending church to launch him off to mission in Spain. But secondly, he has to address these tensions and divisions in the church because it's impossible to be together for the gospel unless you're together in the gospel. And guys, there is a powerful lesson in this for the evangelical church. I'm going to come circle back around to it here in just a minute. Let me say it a different way. Before they can be on mission together, they have to be unified in Jesus, and this is not a unified church, which is what brings us to finally Paul's timely thesis, okay? Now, let me read Romans 1, 16 through 17. We're not going to unpack this today. We're going to come back to this in a couple of weeks, but if you want to boil Romans into a nutshell, into a couple of sentences, this is it. Let's look at Romans 1:16 and 17. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith, for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And what Paul proceeds to do in this book for 16 chapters. He 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 creates this unified singular argument all around this theme of the gospel, and and Paul's point, and we're going to see this in Romans, is that the gospel doesn't just merely save you individually, personally, although it does that, but the gospel transforms you, the gospel unifies you, the it's the gospel that is the glue that holds the church together. And you're going to see this sequence as we walk through the book of Romans. And I'll throw a little outline on here. Um, Debbie, could you put all the points up there at one time? That would be great. I can just kind of read through them really quickly. And so, we, first of all, in Romans 1, Paul is going to tell us about the heart of the gospel. What is the gospel? What is justification by faith? Romans 5 through 8, he's going to talk about the assurance of the gospel, Because we have the gospel as believers, these are the assurances we have of what God is doing in our life. Romans 9 through 11, Paul defends the gospel around this idea of, Paul, why are all these ethnic Jews not believing in their own Messiah? So Paul has to make a defense. In Romans 12 through 15, the transforming power of the gospel. This is where we see how the gospel applies on a ground level to issues in our lives and in the church. And then finally, We'll talk about the mission of the gospel. Paul is taking this gospel theme and he is writing a powerful testimony and story through it. Now, why do I say this thesis is timely? We, we, we can see that it's timely, right, for the church in Rome. The church, I really believe it is very timely for us I'm not sure you're aware of this, but do you guys realize there are like deep divisions in the body of Christ these days? Do you know this? Are you aware of this? Have you seen this on your your Twitter feed or your social network? Listen to what the, the editor of Christianity Today, Timothy Dalrymple, had to say about this. He says, new fractures are forming within the American evangelical movement. Fractures that do not run along the usual regional, denominational, ethnic, or political lines... Couples, families, friends, and congregations, once united in their commitment to Christ, are now dividing over seemingly irreconcilable views of the world. In fact, they are not merely dividing, but becoming incomprehensible to one another. Fellow believers who once stood shoulder to shoulder now find that tectonic shifts have thrust them apart. Their continents are separating and they cannot find a bridge back to common ground. How could our views of reality reality diverge so dramatically? And is there anything we can do to draw together again? Folks, I know that many of you think very differently about a great many things going on around us than maybe with your Christian neighbor or Christian friend. Whether it's COVID or healthcare, or freedom, control, trust of institutions, the role of government, media, politics, all of it. Some of y'all can totally identify with what the writer here is saying. When you say, you know what, I thought I knew so-and-so, but, but what they're saying, what they're doing, what they're posting is just kind of incomprehensible to me. I don't, know, I don't know where they're coming from. And when we have to say that about a fellow believer, you know, here's what we realize, maybe our unity wasn't in Jesus after all. And it takes a season like this to expose a lot of things because Paul says, if you know the gospel, you have the greatest point of unity you can have in your life with any other person. And so if, you were, if, you were, if you're in that camp today and the, the whole context just of, of church and culture at large just really befuddles you and you're confused or you're angry or, or you're hopeless, let me just offer an invitation to you. Come, come with me and let's study Romans. Listen to what Luther says about this book. This is so good. This epistle is really the chief part of the New Testament and the very purest gospel and is worthy not only that every Christian should know it word by word, hint, right? By heart, but occupy himself with it every day. As the daily bread of the soul, it can never be read or pondered too much. And the more it is dealt with, the more precious it becomes and the better it tastes. Folks, I I think Romans has the medicine for for what ills us. Because Paul is gonna look into a deeply divided situation in this church, and he's gonna say, Let me tell you about the gospel, let me tell you about Jesus. And let me, ha- let me tell you how, how it not doesn't just save you, but it unifies you. It, it's the common thread that holds all of us together. So I want to invite you into that. Um, something that we're going to do this week, I'll, we'll send it out in the Four Oaks Weekly. If you're not on that email list, you can sign up on the hub or go outside and sign up. But I'm going to send out a, a sort of a resource list of, of different commentaries, books, devotional ideas, Bible study books, um, Tools we want to put in your hands so that you can study this book right along with us. And I don't mean like come in here once a week and listen for 35 minutes. But how is God calling you to feed on his word, like Luther says? Here's a couple of suggestions, and let me, I'll say these and we'll be done. One, I just encourage you at some point between now and next Sunday, sit down and read the whole book in one sitting. It seems like a lot, I know, but it's possible, right? When I say this in jest, right? Because this was a letter, right? And it was read to people just like us by the person who brought the letter in. So sit down and read the whole book. Try to memorize a key verse or passage. You might just want to start by trying to memorize Romans 1, 16, and 17, and I know you'll do this because I'm going to call on somebody randomly next Sunday. It's going to be awesome, right? So don't, don't embarrass yourself. I better be careful because I've got to memorize it too. Um, medith- guys, have your devotional time in, in Romans. Study the book using some of our recommended resources. Again, I'm going to put all this in the email that's going to go out this week. But if I could call you to one thing above all, it's simply this. For folks In Romans, meditate on the majesty of Jesus. You see, when, when, when think about a triangle for a second and here is you and here is somebody, you know, and y'all cannot be further apart on you name it, any of the issues I just mentioned, right? And strive as you can to, to, to reach the other person or to have the other person reach you. You just never make any sort of progress, right? It's like you're beating your head against the wall. Paul says you're trying to unify around the wrong thing. See, up here is the gospel. And as you pursue Jesus and the gospel, it's that common bond that brings you together, not the horizontal, but it's the vertical. And this is the lesson I think Paul has for us, that Romans has for us, and that I pray will be a feast for your souls. Let's pray.